to this event. I'm with, uh, my name is Lisa Jardine, and um, I'm uh, your master of ceremonies for this event, which is really showcasing John Agar. <laughs> no pressure there. Right. Um, uh, and I just wanted to sort of say something to try and capture this event in this location. Uh, first of all, um, uh, just to say to you practically, at the end of this session, which will be prompt 8 o'clock because John has to go off to do something grand somewhere else, um, uh, there will be tours of the um, Collider exhibition, which means you will have had, you'll get us and the exhibition for a cut price fiver. So um, I hope as many of you as possible will stay for the uh, tour. And it will start here um, with, as the, um, the, t the ex exhibition does. So you don't have to move. Um, those of you who stay, it will all start here, right? Now, um, that's the first thing. The second thing to say is that we are, I hope, and to the extent we've had a chance to um, prep this event, uh, trying to capture the atmosphere both of the exhibition and of CERN in this talk. So we don't want to do it like a sort of classic, um, uh, you know, show and telly talk. Something about CERN and the way in which it is unlike other, um, the big science, which uh, John's going to tell us about, operates very differently from this sort of Cavendish laboratory, white-coated lab science, um, which I, this exhibition beautifully captures. Um, uh, I hope we're going to try and capture in what we do now, to try and make it somehow at once as scrupulously accurate, as informative, but to throw off some of the sort of hierarchy and... and, yeah. and we're um, also going to try and find the Higgs boson. We are going to try and, yeah, we will. We will locate the Higgs boson by the end of... Um, uh, do you know, I've come such a long way with this collider. You know, I, I, you know, at the beginning of it, I was calling it the Higgs boson particle. You know, whoa, those were the days, <laughs> right? No, it's the Higgs boson. Um, now, to be serious, um, my um, conversational partner is Dr. John Agar, who is senior lecturer in science and technology studies at University College, which is also my college, so this is terribly inward. Um, uh, now, the, the point about this event, when I tease him and say it's showcasing, is I got very excited about getting John to talk in this context, because he has written a book which, if you haven't bought it yet, um, you would be foolish not to buy it either before... Well, you can't buy it. Well, can they buy it before you leave today? Uh, okay, and they, or they can buy it from Amazon. Anyway, it's called... Um, uh, science in the 20th century and beyond. It's about yay thick. Um, it's actually extremely readable. But um, if I got over anything about 20th century science in my seven ages of science, it was because I read John Agar's book. So the first I knew of John was I read that book. The second thing was I said to my producer, oh, we've got to find this man. We've got to find him. I can't do this program without this man. Um, so this really... and What you're going to hear is, um, I think, the best account you could currently have, and I mean best in the most plausible account you could currently have, of why science, and particularly this thing we we'll call big science, has moved since World War II and through World War II in a very unexpected direction, not the one that Henry Cavendish would have expected um, before the war. Um, and it has to do with all kinds of things, including social, political, funding, occasional, scale. They all come together. That was exciting. Um, uh, I was told there might be drilling. but that, um, 
so they all come together. So that's by way of my, is that enough of an introduction? Do you know who we all are, are now? And, yeah, okay. So what I want to do is I want to start by asking uh, John to um, try to go back to the 1940s. Mm. And I'm asking you to do two things at once. To capture what it was that happened to science in the war years. And then to segue beautifully into big science mm -hmm. um, as being somehow the, the focus of what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. So um, there's lots to talk about there. Um, thank you very much, Lisa. That was a very generous introduction. I'm very, I'm very pleased to be here. Hello. Um, so I, one thing I'm very interested in doing is, is sort of what we have up here is, is a picture of part of the Large Hadron Collider. It's the Atlas um, um, instrument, part of the detection system in, in the Large Hadron Collider. As it's being built, you can see the scale of the person there. It's an enormous instrument, right? It's a very expensive, very large scale, um, very intricate device. Um, and of course, that is sort of the end point. And, and, and the beginning point is you can just see it through the, the little window over there. At, um, a little glass um, piece of apparatus that dates from about 117 or so years ago, um, in which that instrument or devices like that were used in uh, Cambridge to, to well, discover the electron, to to find one of the first fundamental particles. And the, it's the difference of scale between that instrument there, which could fit on a desk, and that kind of instrument up there, which dwarfs the person underneath it, is tells us something that we need to explain. How do we get from science that looks like that to science that looks like that? Now, as, as Lisa um, intimated, one of the important factors in that story is the Second World War, what happens in the war, what scientists do in the Second World War, and what lessons they learn. So um, what I'll, I'll start really by telling you a little bit about um, I suppose the scientists in the Second World War, what were they like? Well, some of the big scientific and technological moments of the Second World War, we all know things like the building of the radar systems um, to detect incoming aircraft, absolutely crucial to the defence of Britain and to other parts of the war. Of course, the detonation, the building and detonation of atomic bombs that, that ended the war. And there's a host of other much more either less known um, projects or even more secret projects, things like um, code breaking at Mm -hmm. Bletchley Park, for example. Now, what many of those projects had in common was a mixing. It was a mixing of different sorts of people. It was a mixing of different, sometimes scientists from different backgrounds. So you had physicists and engineers, but also even biologists, uh, mathematicians working in these places um, and, and getting to know how each other worked, to some extent. It was a mixture of, of academic science with industrial science, with military science, in ways that really had not intersected in quite such a way 
before. And if you look at a crucial technology like radar, you see each of those things being uh, uh, very important. So um, I'm sure one technology that almost everyone here has got in their home, the uh, microwave, if you take apart a microwave, um, which I sadly haven't done, I'd love to like take things apart, but if you rip apart a, mi a microwave, what you'll find in the back is a very small device. It just looks really like a lump of metal, but inside that metal it's very carefully chiselled out, very carefully machined. And that is a, what is known as a magnetron. It's a very simple device that is used to produce very high um, intensity, very high frequency radio waves. Um, at the intensity enough that you can use in a box to heat up, your, heat up your food. Now, that device was invented during the Second World War. It was invented by academic scientists, but they were working with industrial scientists, and they were doing it for a military purpose. So they were Birmingham University scientists working with General Electric Company, a big industry, doing it for the Admiralty. It had that mixture of academic, industrial, and military. That device was crucial because it gave the high-frequency, high-power radio waves that were essential to building the really sophisticated radar systems of the Second World War. Can I just ask you a question about mm. that? Um, I mean, was that essential discovery, was it something that was being already aimed at? Was there a program that was developing it, or is it something that came out? Not to the same degree. I mean, the urgency of the Second World War yeah. forced people to think very quickly and hard about these new problems. And in this case, how do you generate high-frequency okay. radio waves for radar? Um, but the scientists who worked on those things learned things that, that was going to be useful after the Second World War. They learned, for example, that you could work in a new way. You could work towards goals. Mm -hmm. So a, a certain mission-oriented science and engineering was something that they learned. They learned how to pitch new ideas to patrons. That was quite good. They learned how to get things done very quickly. That also was very handy. And you see all those sorts of features turning up in post-Second World War science. The mixture of the disciplines, the new patrons, getting things done. A certain sort of, uh, sort of combination of things. Now, when we turn to look at um, physics after the Second World War, because the, that instrument there, J.J. Thompson's um, electron instrument and the Atlas experiment is an um, experiment in physics. Um, what do we see? Well, if you're looking over across Europe in 1945, well, Germany, which had been the heartland of physics, really, in the 1920s and 1930s, quantum mechanics, relativity, these are... These are essentially theories that have been developed in the German land in the first half of the 20th century. If you wanted to know about physics and do physics, where would you go in the first half of the 20th century? It is largely Germany. But, of course, Germany, after Nazism, after the Second World War, was devastated. You have French physicists, also a great tradition of, 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 of physics, but, again, in laboratories and in cities which are wrecked. You have Britain, which is on its on its knees and is exhausted through the war effort. So, in 1945, conversations start about where should physics go next in Europe. 
And out of that conversation comes the suggestion for CERN. Can, can you take us through? Because yeah. I think, I don't know how many people here, how much people know about CERN per se as an organisation, but it was a complete revelation to me to discover how absolutely it came out of that physics in, the, uh, in World War II. Yeah. So, um, so you have, I mean, in it, it's not so much out of the physics of, the, of World no, War sorry, II, I should say, because after all, people, scientists had been, and physicists had been diverted into all kinds of war careers, yeah. war projects, like the atomic bomb, like radar. So when it came to what to do in reconstruction times in, after 1945, many of them did go back to academic jobs, mm -hmm. but they went back knowing a new way of doing physics and knowing that you could, you could do physics at a bigger scale, the things you could achieve if you organised and thought big. And one of the lessons of the Manhattan Project, the project to build the atomic bomb, was, look, if you set physics a mission and you give it the resources, look what you could achieve. And that was a lesson that was learnt by the physicists, but also the policy makers right? and, 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 and the military generals. What could be done if you, if, if you pursued mm. physics at that level? Also, the Manhattan Project was seen as a partly as, a, as an outcome of investigations in fundamental physics. Mm -hmm. So there's no doubt that there, it, that there was an expectation that in the future there would be more things that would come out of fundamental physics. So doing, understanding the physical world at a micro, micro level, understanding the fundamental processes of physics was seen as a long-term necessary science to do because there were consequences, not least consequences such as new weapons. Right? But in the case of CERN, that wasn't the only problem that was being solved. The other problem was how do you knit together Europe after the devastation mm -hmm. of war? So in the 1940s, after 1945, the conversation begins, well, we want to, to have a project which will pull together the wrecked state of European physics, something that will allow German physicists to work with Italian, to work with French, to work possibly with the British, with Swiss and other countries. <laughs> we'll come to we'll that. Come to that. <laughs> and out of those conversations come the suggestions for a, um, for, for a European project on nuclear science. And the nuclear, the N in CERN is very interesting. Centre Européen de Recherche Nuclear. nuclear. That's right. Right. So, you know, every time someone talks about CERN, its origin is a sort of um, um, idealistic version of pan-European nuclear yes. research, meaning nuclear in the... Uh, I always love it in France still, that, you know, everything good in France is nuclear. Your washing powder is called blanc nucléaire, <laughs> whereas we don't use nuclear in that positive way. Mm. But, the, so the, but uh, um, you know, the whole Higgs you could say cavalcade or circus, uh, the whole CERN-Higgs boson, um, has, has left behind, but for 
for we historians, it needs to be always there. Where has this come from? This has come from all these different strategies of working together, of having authority, I think, distributed in a rather mm -hmm. different way. You were talking to someone from who works at CERN about that over sandwiches. Um, uh, and above all, that it was a project of unified European research brackets yeah. to match the Americans, of course, by that point. That's right. So, so, so this, so compared to Europe, compared to the United States, the United States had um, great laboratories that were untouched by war, that had contributed to the war effort, had been, had had resources pumped into it, places like MIT, I mean, as well as the sort of Manhattan Project laboratories like Los Alamos. Um, if Europe was going to compete in physics, then it would have, need to have something of a, of a similar scale. But going, going back to the end, that, 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 the, the nuclear side of, of CERN, mm -hmm. I mean, in, in one sense, it's quite a trivial thing. It, it, nu nuclear physics just meant the physics at the scale of the, of, of, of the nucleus. But it, it did, in 1945, also have this aura of being associated with mm -hmm. the atomic bomb. And in fact, in very early discussions at CERN, um, before they'd even decided to build it at, outside Geneva, um, to be, before they'd even decided to, decide to build um, particle accelerators, they were toying with the idea of building it around a reactor. So mm. everything was up in the air, really, in the, early, in, in the early years after the Second World War. And how did they sort the funding out? Because I think that's a strand that people would be interested in. Again, war work that's funded a bottomless, a limitless bucket right. of funding. <laughs> I mean, this might be a good time to talk about big science yes, and, yes. And, and what big science usually looks like. Um, so big science is a, is a category of science that the label really comes from the 1960s, but it describes something that, that seems to be typical of a certain large-scale science from the Second World War onwards. We think of the big particle accelerators. Uh, we think of big space projects. Um, uh, we might even think of something like the Human Genome Project mm. in later years. Um, but these, these are projects that are marked sometimes by what we call the five M's. There's, there's, there's uh, uh, men and women involved, large staff numbers. It tends to cir circle around a big M being a machine, a big instrument, like that. It tends to be, cost a lot of money. <laughs> um, it usually has some kind of military significance during the Cold War, and there's usually some kind of media side to it as well. Now, some of those flow from each other. So because it is very expensive, um, uh, then it needs patronage in a way that smaller-scale science might be able to be funded through little cracks in the pavement here and there smaller sums of money, but big science project, if we're talking about space science or we're talking about particle accelerators, high energy physics, big scale astronomy, um, then what we need are our patrons. And really the only patron we're talking about is the state and quite often the military side of the state. So if we look at space science, for example, we, we, we find the military and the civil sides absolutely entwined. Mm -hmm. Even if we look at something like radio astronomy, we find um, there being lots of interest on the military side, maybe to do with eavesdropping, maybe to do with tracking of ballistic missiles, as well as the interest in, in mapping out what the universe looks like at radio frequencies. 
Um, but actually, when it comes to CERN, it's almost unique in that we do not see a particular military interest. In fact, if anything, a, there, there's the military expressed complete disinterest in CERN. It's very curious. Is that from the beginning? Almost right from the beginning. And one of the reasons why it's, it's seen as that is because it is serving a different purpose. Um, it's, promote, it's, it's celebrated, um, and it's really begun, as a demonstration of large-scale peaceful research in Europe. Um, it's something that... You know, if, this is a time when there were restrictions, for example, on what German scientists could do. This was seen as something that had no, mili no military significance, and therefore it was something that it could, be, um, it could be pursued that way. So this is a Manchester Guardian article, a European laboratory, peaceful research in common. And if I just show you another document from this time, um, I know it's hot, difficult to read. I'll just read a little bit of it. This document here comes out of, um, I was in the National Archives earlier the week, just digging up some interesting things. And, and the question of CERN, the question of why should Britain spend money on this European project, um, it riled a few lords, <laughs> right? And one in particular, Lord Jowett, said, why are we spending something on this nuclear factory in Switzerland? It's, 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 it's a lot of money. And this, this, this uh, provoked the uh, civil servants involved to, 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 to put down on one piece of paper all the reasons why Britain was going to be involved with CERN, because it did. Britain had a very strange relationship. They weren't going to join for a while. There's quite a few sceptics. I mean, it is typical of the Britain-European relationship generally. They're keen, but they, 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 they don't want to join at the beginning. By the time they join, it's too late to actually... Uh, <laughs> um, Shape it. Shape it in, in, in significant ways. Um, after all, Britain had pl plenty of other accelerators mm. of its own in the 1940s, um, more so than anywhere else in Europe. It was the country that didn't need CERN, in fact, at least not in the first few years. Of course, Britain could never afford a CERN like it is now. But just right at the end of here, so this is the civil servants composing a few words, and I just love it because it says... Um, in particular, it was felt that while the UK at present possesses many leaders in nuclear physics, we have no monopoly of genius. <laughs> there are many eminent nuclear scientists in Europe who will be cooperating in this scheme. It should therefore be to the advantage of British science that our own representatives should be working side by side with their European colleagues from the early formative stages of their cooperative researches. The conclusion was therefore reached that it would be of the greatest value if our scientists were to participate cooperatively, that word again, in this new and vitally important field of scientific knowledge and that it would enable them at the same time to contribute to the cause of European progress and prosperity. It's actually, CERN is actually one of the proto-European institutions, right? It shows that Europeans can work together in ways that are, you know, only later are explored in political or other economic mm -hmm. fields, actually. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so you've got us into the beginnings of big science. Could mm -hmm. we just reel back slightly to the Manhattan Project? Because I know you've <coughs> got some good images for us um, to, to capture this idea that on the scale at which you're working by the time you get to um, uh, 
um, CERN and beyond, um, it's no longer, you're no longer talking, if you ever could, about the life of the scientist being at one remove from his or her everyday life. You've actually created whole communities, the scale, literally the, 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 the tens or hundreds of thousands of people. I can't remember, Oak Ridge in the... Um, the Manhattan Project was 30,000 people. Oak Ridge had 75,000 75, people, people working. That, that's, you know, again, when I was first introduced to it, you know, there were these three locations for the Manhattan Project, and I thought of them as, as, um, as huts with, you know, bits of machinery in them, and scientists, again, I couldn't get over the white coats probably, um, going in and out of them. But then the scale of the tens of thousands of people who are working there with all the support systems that are needed yeah. produces something else. That's right. I think you do need to have a different picture of what science looks like or can look like under big science. And the Manhattan Project was perhaps the best example, but it also was a model for mm. later projects as well. So it was very expensive. It cost $2 billion, all kept off the official accounts as well. It was all secretly done. Who could spend $2 billion building atomic bomb? Well, only the state, of course. Right? However, to do that, they had to have industrial partners. Right? So one of the features of big science is you have this entwining between science and industry. You need industry to build the big magnets. You need science to, provide, to build what is essentially light or even heavy engineering to make what these scientific instruments work. Mm. Um, so, as you know, the Manhattan Project is the project to build the atomic bomb in the United States. And it, as Lisa said, it was over several sites. So Los Alamos in the desert, where the physicists were mostly, is perhaps the most well-known one. Even that had several thousand people, and it was a town built from scratch on top of a Mesa. You know, it's, uh, it's, these, are, these are cities, science cities that have grown up over only a few years. Then you have two other big major sites, one being Oak Ridge in Tennessee, where the electricity is. It uses the electricity, mostly hydroelectric energy, to, um, to run the, set, the separators, which separate out the uranium-235 from the uranium-238 that you don't want. It sounds like it's a technical task, but it's an amazingly energy-intensive task. It used one-third of the electricity of the United States at one stage. It is extraordinary, the scale of this. So you have industry involved. You have, obviously have a military side to it. It's about the bomb, and with that comes security and things like that. And I, I mean, you usually illustrate, I suppose, the Manhattan Project with pictures of the detonation at Alamogordo or over Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima and the devastation that they wreak. But... The point that I'd like just to get across right now, skip across these, is the, is the, the sort of more domestic implications of the scale. So this, these are a laboratory. These are, this, is a, this is a science city. This, this is, I think it's Oak Ridge, but I think it's what, they, what we're seeing is it's a place that needs to have schools, hospitals, in the top right hand, you can just see the red crosses on the vans, houses, homes for people to work, places to play, and even churches, I think this might be the Church of Los Alamos, I'm not sure, but there's plenty of them. You had big populations, not just technical people and scientists, but all the support staff, all of those having to work together 
in quite a complicated fashion, mm. all working towards certain aims. So I, I do like these sort of pictures which remind us of the scale of, of some of these sites. Mm -hmm. And would that be true at CERN now? I, you know, I've never been to CERN, actually. I, I, I feel slightly embarrassed. I mean, <laughs> it's, um, I, you know, I, the, the, the pictures that tell me about the scale of CERN, which I'm sure you've seen too, are, are the sort of where people have drawn on an aerial view over sort of the Swiss-French countryside, and you can see the scale of the rings under the ground. So there's the 27-kilometre the ring, right? So this is an enormous tunnel underneath. Um, and they've got it all through there, by the way, <laughs> um, that, 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 that had to be built. Um, uh, but around that, yes, you have buildings and uh, you, people work there, so you have... You know, so you can't just a have a snack bar. I mean, if you've got 3,000 people yes. it, on Atlas, you, can, you can't have... You can't sort of um, have a little bar. I mean, I think in our heads, I think this is really important for people, to, for people who are not scientists. I don't, I'm not going to do my professorial thing of asking how many of you are or retired scientists, but, but um, uh, I just think, I personally think that for our understanding of how our life is entwined with science, one of the ways to get a hold of it is to understand how science itself is so entwined with life that, um, that uh, on the, the, the part of the scale of these big science projects um, is there's almost the sucking in of the rest of life into the project of science itself. So far from it simply being that ring on the mm -hmm. uh, Swiss la landscape, as it were, under the Swiss landscape, that's almost the opposite to what it really means, which sounds as if there is just this huge piece of equipment and no people, and that the way architects like to produce drawings. You know, but, but in fact, this is about huge numbers of yeah. people and the social side of it or you, what you might almost call the domestic side I sort of this is where I'm I'm prodding John with my interpretations on the basis of his knowledge um, uh, of the, the the thing itself it feels to me in the way in which we've been told by people who do work at CERN that far from it being feeling like a huge project actually people have this sense of being involved in rather small things that it's almost like you come in and do your own you, you walk into the laundromat but you only use one machine and you actually do your domestic laundry and sort out your underwear um, uh, with a sense that you're working on your own topic but actually it's serviced and served by this huge um, uh, apparatus that surrounds it. It feels to me as if that again does something to science that hasn't been there before. Yes, it's, I mean, it's like a city or a very large organisation. There's lots of different roles and parts within it. Um, mm. Even the work is finally divided into different sorts of tasks. And I think one of the nice things actually about this exhibition is, is when you see the sort of what the office space yeah. is. You know, it, it's, that's what it's like to, 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 to work at CERN. That's what the sort of living life it's a bicycle that, the, <laughs> that, 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 that one of the senior managers uses to, to cycle round the ring. And for me, that almost captures it, you know. There is this vast piece of equipment, and you'd think that was terribly impersonal, but then there's the CERN bicycle that, um, that's used to, as the most convenient way of going round it. But there is something... I mean, one of the questions you can ask about big size, it is so expensive. It does suck up so many resources. Um, those resources could go to other things. It could go to other sciences, or it could go to other things in life. Mm. You know, you might want to spend that money differently. So one of the recurring questions about big science is, does it pay its way? Does it contribute to, 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 our, to our world? Now, you might think, 
understanding the fundable, fundamental forces and of of nature is is, is almost like a, a cultural prize in its own. Um, but is it worth the price tag? Is it worth the the, the, the billion pounds or Swiss francs that was that was spent on the Large Hadron Collider, for example? And is it hard to turn the the liner, as it were. I mean, if you've invested all of that in that particular sort of equipment, does that rule out certain sorts of experiments or certain sorts of lines of inquiry? There was there was an argument in the early first decade, couple of decades of CERN, that 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 the CERN leaders, physicists, engineers, were always looking for the sort of the perfect solution, and they weren't adaptable enough to. to to change what they were doing, um, to check out new theories or, or, or so on, and thereby lost out to the United States, to the Fermi Lab, to um, to um, Brookhaven and other um, high energy physics laboratories, some of the great discoveries, um, and that's partly because it is very difficult. Once you once you these projects need such long term planning especially if you're coordinating lots of different people from lots of different countries. It is very hard mm. to sort of change direction mm -hmm. with Zoom. Now, actually, what CERN, in the second half of its life, got very good at being just the kind of, being adaptable in just the kind of way that they were criticizing not being. Can it I? It is difficult. Yeah, now, because people have set science in a, on a certain path. On a certain path. We've, yeah. well, we've, you know, we've, as it were, promised in our title, you know, the period after the war, and I hope we've set up for you a bit about how it comes out of the war. Could you say a little bit, um, uh, again, this is from my personal experience, I had completely the wrong story in my head about what happened after the droppings of the, the dropping of the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and about what people used to refer to as the swerve away from physics, which we now don't... Didn't, didn't happen, more people worked in physics in the years after 45 um, than had been in the course of the war and so on. Um, but the bit that I had missed in the jigsaw is what we now refer to as the, co the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Could you say a little bit to us? So you've said that CERN, we've got CERN being set up yeah. in this rather wonderfully, you know, rainbow banner, peaceful um, after the war, yeah. hand-holding between Europe. You could say dry run for the EU, you know. Um, uh, and then we've got at the other end the sort of heroic um, experiments that increase the probability of the existence of the Higgs boson and mm -hmm. so on. Um, in between, fundamental science kind of, for me, goes underground because... Although we're not at war, between the end of the 40s and the end of the Cold War, yeah. a lot of this research is still, as it were, war-directed, isn't it? So it, it, seems, it sort of seems to me, I'm talking about me, you know, it seems to have just disappeared, it's gone, and yeah. suddenly it, it re-emerges. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what's going on in the 50s, yeah. let's say? I mean, it's one of those things that now, now the archives have been released after the end of the, of the Cold War, We've been able to go back and see through documents you know, who, who was funding what, what was going on, and trace that history in a, in a way we just couldn't have done um, 20 years ago, let us say. And we are getting a picture of, of, of science that, that is heavily shaped by Cold War concerns. So CERN is very much, I think, the exception amongst mm -hmm. big science projects that, 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 that there isn't a Cold War 
interest, a strong one in it, mm -hmm. that's shaping its direction. Because in most other large-scale physics, astronomy, um, oceanographic, um, envir even environmental science projects, is we do find Cold War interest, whether it's understanding the Earth because you want to understand the ocean so you can um, hide submarines in, at the bottom of the ocean, or you want to understand the atmosphere because you need to know if you're detecting a ballistic missile, that it's that rather than a flock of geese or something. You've got to do a lot of basic science all over the world um, uh, for um, during the Cold War. And the Cold War patrons, the, the funders, um, were well aware of that. And the, the, the funding for the sciences have never, has never been so lavish as during the Cold War. And is that military funding or industrial funding or both? Well, it's military funding, but it, is channel it goes through either through contacts to industry or it could come back through academia to support academic work. And it, it, it wasn't always as mission-oriented mm. as, say, the Manhattan Project might suggest. There were quite generous patrons who sometimes offered money in a fairly strings-free approach. Mm. What they wanted is for the sciences to be developed and there have to be plenty of expertise there ready to work if necessary. And After all, during, during, during the Cold War, war could be over in a matter of minutes. You mm. couldn't do all your preparation once... Or you couldn't do all your work once the war had started. You had to do it all beforehand. And that's what made the Cold War a war of research and development, almost like nothing, no other war before it. And if we have a, again, as CERN gives it to us as well, a sort of model of sharing and openness, presumably that wasn't the case during the Cold War. And presumably there's Russian science that's being developed completely separately from, and the European nations actually themselves. Yes. Um, is that right? So absolutely. So, so, um, so in the national laboratories in the United States, for example, you would have security class classifications um, that might affect what you, you can do or what you can say about your, your research. There's a, the, the, the Iron Curtain also was, 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 was stopped um, a lot of flow of knowledge. A lot of people couldn't travel either. Mm. Um, so, in a sense, you almost had two separate worlds of science developing, mirroring each other because they were both second-guessing what mm. each other were doing, but kept separate. Now, as a historian, yeah. can you see in that period any sense, because, again, I was brought up on the sort of romance that the whole point about science was the sharing and the group participation, um, and, and um, uh, do you... Does, are there any consequences of that? I mean, are there? Can you see developments that don't that, that dead end because mm. they don't know something that somebody knows in a alien? Country? I think it's, it, I think more that it offered opportunities. I mean, I, I'll give you one example. It's one that we only found out had a, mil a project that had a military angle only relatively recently. It was a satellite called the Grab satellite, and Grab stood for Galactic Radiation Background Satellite. And it was, a, it was a satellite, as the name suggests, that it was looking at the galaxy. It was, uh, it was, it was an astronomical satellite. But it turns out that that was only half of the satellite. The other half of the satellite was to do electronic intelligence observations and surveillance of the Soviet Union. 
it was advertised as, a, as, a, as an astronomical one. And indeed, the only way it could have been funded or launched was, um, well, the only way it could have been funded and launched was because it actually had this covert role as well. Now, from the scientist's point of view, this was actually great. They got space on a satellite. They would never have had that. Mm -hmm. But they had to play along. They had to pretend that, you know, that, um, that well, they had, to, they had to accept where their funding was coming from. And if that came with constraints, they had to accept those too. So it was a compromise, but it was also an opportunity to do research. I do think that the clue, though, in, is in the name of grab. It clearly was out there to grab something, and it wasn't just astronomical data. And presumably we're, even now, yeah. discovering things, as you're saying, that we couldn't have known about yeah. even so that 20 was only, years ago. The secret side of that was only released in 1998. Okay, okay. Um, now, let me... Uh, um, and it was launched in 1960. And was it still up there? Was it grabbing? Is it still <laughs> grabbing? There, there, are one, there are some satellites. Satellites slowly decay. You know, they fall back to Earth. Um, but there are, there are some satellites and objects from that era that are still circling the Earth. Now, um, I'm going to throw it open to questions very, very shortly. Um, but, and I'm just going to try and sum up a little tiny bit. But the, before I do that, I just want to ask you um, if there's what I haven't drawn out of this discussion that you might want to talk about. Yeah, I, I, You've got I, five I, minutes. I was going to talk a bit about, I was going to show you some pictures of, of radio telescopes, but I think I will, apart from, they were there to illustrate the scale of what was Britain's largest nationally built instrument. This is the, anyone know which one this is? This is John Tulbank, yes. This is the first engineering drawing. Um, and this is it as it was built. And does it, show that these sort of technological traje trajectories have a sort of um, momentum of their when own. When was that built? So they, it was completed in 1957, and that drawing's from 1951. Mm. And that's 250 feet acro across. And they wanted to build even bigger ones. This one was going to be in Wales, and it was going to be 400 feet across. It would be an enormous instrument. That one never quite got built. Could never get the patronage. And crucially, the patronage for this, it was always, the funding was always controversial. Some came from civil science, but um, what saved it in the end was a big check from Lord Nuffield, um, and who was the car manufacturer, uh, William Morris. Um, and he was a real zealot in the Cold War. He, he, he was worried about Soviet missiles over, over his Oxford car factories and things like that. Um, <laughs> And, and, and he was convinced that, yes, funding this would be a way of early detecting radio, uh, early detecting ballistic missiles and things like that. Um, bought that sort of Red Scare story quite, quite completely, in fact. Um, but it's an illustration of how you know, the, the big science instruments, even the biggest one in Britain, this one, have these entwined civil and military stories mm -hmm. in, the, in their background. And the only other thing I was going to show you, uh, well, these are more sort of Los Alamos pictures, just to um, say, just to sort of show that in most big science places, security was a very big concern. Military security, so you had machine guns, passes, s keeping silent on topics, um, less so in CERN. CERN was more about open conversation um, and communication. It's quite a 
little spot of utopia, really, in the post-war world. Um, but yes. it always dependent on patronage. Um, no big science project can afford to lose the interests of the funders. Um, and just as the CERN was going, coming up to it, a new fund of phasing, uh, fund of, a new phase of funding, um, uh, which will eventually lead to, uh, well, the, the, the years of the Large Hadron Collider. Um, the annual subs that Britain gave to CERN were being questioned. And this is, this is a letter that I found in the National Archives. It's only just been released from 1984. Um, and it's, it's from 10 Downing Street. Um, and this is, the, this is the correspondence in 10 Downing Street between um, ministers, very senior civil servants, and the prime minister. And essentially what this one is saying is that the Secretary of State came to see the prime minister yesterday on the science budget, etc., etc. Britain spending too much, blah, blah, blah. Right at the end says, prime minister recognised the scientific interest in high energy particle physics, but she felt that CERN in common with many collaborative projects, was extravagant. So <laughs> moments of danger for yeah. CERN. CERN, is this, this, from the British side, Britain blew hot and cold on CERN, sometimes very enthusiastic, enthusiastic collaborators, as they are now. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, within recent times, Britain could have pulled out of CERN and... Uh, um, and uh, Brit British physicists would have had almost no, little, no, little or no access to, to CERN as a result. And rather hugely ironical that it would be our one scientist prime minister right, who yeah. nearly did that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. She okay. does change her mind. Yeah, good. But <laughs> um, <laughs> terrific. Well, um, let me just, you know, I'll just say to you the, the ideas that we'd hoped we would get across to you. First of all, there is this idea um, that in time of war, and we can see it so clearly in the... Uh, science changes most dramatically in time of war. I mean, you could take that right back to William Harvey's discovery of the circulation of the blood, which wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been holed up in, a, um, uh, in Oxford uh, as a royalist being besieged by the parliamentary troops, and he had lots and lots of bodies. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it was ever thus, but that I am particularly intrigued, and I would have to say excited, by these very unexpected ways, I think, in which the scale of science, the, the organisation of science, the, um, the, the consequences for the domestic and the social of the involvement with big science, the emergence of big science itself, changes in patronage, um, the getting used to access to large funding, um, both industrial and um, uh, government, and therefore also military, um, uh, and these themes that we have drawn out and how they characterise the science which we kind of take for granted today. And then I did want John to remind us that a period when I'm afraid I had always paid too much attention, saving their grace, to academic university science, you know, during the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you're looking kind of in the wrong place. 
that um, uh, as long as the Cold War goes on, um, a lot of the research that feeds in ultimately to bigger projects, including the Human Genome Project, projects that surface and have gone now into sort of overdrive, particularly with um, uh, industrial and commercial um, backing. Um, uh, that research is going on to other ends, still with big military um, uh, emphasis. And I think very particularly for me, because otherwise where did the current si si physics come from, mm -hmm. that there is no let up in physics. The romance that, um, that I was taught, um, that the scientists, the clever scientists left physics and moved to biology, that didn't actually happen. The only sense incidentally in which it did happen, shouldn't really put this in a summing up, is that all the Jewish immigrants, including my dad and Leo Zillard, and, um, who had been allowed to work on top secret nuclear in a war setting, were fired the day the war ended and not allowed to touch top secret ever again. Um, so um, they, they never got the clearance. Every time MI5 was asked to release them for a particular job, they never got it. Sorry, digression. Mm. Um, so that's where and we... And therefore turned sometimes turn to biology. And therefore they turned to other areas. And, and um, that, ha that also had begun in the war when um, the two enemy aliens who'd not been allowed to work on radar actually were they produced the fundamental work that led to the development of the atomic bomb. So, mm. um, so these are all shapes to stories for me for which... John has miraculously all the knowledge and information, um, uh, which I think shed a much clearer light on where science finds itself today. So now we've got 15 minutes in which you can um, ask us anything that you would like. There's one of these roving mics. Now, the roving mic is not so we can hear you. This is being recorded and will go on the website. And so if you want to be recorded for posterity, you speak clearly into the mic and hold it quite close to your mouth. You don't have to say who you are, so. Um, so who would like to um, ask? Yes, in the front row here, if you wouldn't mind waiting for the mic. What direction is American big science taking after the end of the Cold War? Mm. Because you've now got CERN probably as the really, only really big part of accelerator in operation. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> That's a very good question, because and there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very famous project um, which will, I used to illustrate by answer, and that's a superconducting super collider. Now, that was a plan for a particle accelerator that would dwarf even CERN, okay? So it would take, um, uh, it would take energy, the energy of the collisions up to another level and presumably lead to some more interesting physics as a result. And this was the big plan uh, in the late 1980s, um, because the Americans have been rather stung by the discoveries that CERN had begun to produce, like the discovery of the W and Z particles, for example. Um, and this would swing the leadership in physics back towards the United States. Um, but it was going to be very expensive, so it would be several billion dollars. And um, just as some of the crucial um, votes in Congress were coming up, well, that's the time when the, sort of the Cold War ended. So it was a period of uncertainty. And since one of the main justifications for physics in the post-war years in the United States was that it was a pillar of national security, physics had led to the, to the atomic bomb. Continued physics was essential for further national security projects and reasons. It, 
the end of the Cold War meant some of that began to unravel, just enough really to, for it to be cancelled. There are other reasons too. There was a decision, for example, just to put it in Texas. Now, if you just put that meant that only the Texas senator was going to vote for it, because it was billions of dollars just going into Texas. So there are other, there are other reasons behind the cancellation, but, but <coughs> the end of the Cold War was one of them, right? And you know that left the Americans without a very large next generation accelerator to look forward to. Now, what, the, what happens next? You can collaborate in other projects. Um, you can look towards maybe a international, a truly international um, big particle accelerator, but those, that talk, which has been going on for several decades now, is showing no signs of being resolved. Mm -hmm. um, the other, the, the, the Tevatron which was CERN's <coughs> rival, really, for the Higgs discovery. Well, that's being powered down because, it really, it duplicates too much of what CERN can do. So, yeah, the, you know, the United States, having had a, 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 an incredible run of discoveries and, and um, really pushing um, high-energy physics and other kinds of physics through the 50s and 1960s into the 1970s, well, it has faltered partly with the... Um, with, with what CERN could do, but also because some of the arguments behind the funding um, um, haven't been quite so persuasive as they once were. But, of course, the whole space race, the whole rockets and sending um, people into space and so on, I mean, as America's, you know, big investment during the Cold War period is also part of that mm -hmm. um, uh, remilitarization. So, yeah. <coughs> um, a gentleman in the middle there, and then... Uh, and you're after the gentleman had his hand up back there. Do you want to put your hand up again? Yes, there we go. Yes, you, you mentioned that the SSC was um, um, located in Texas, which is an example of American pork barrel politics. Yes. One of the things you didn't mention was that it was in a dry county. They were located in a dry county, and no particle physicists wanted to go and work there. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah, there, are, there are some factors that are more important than national the, security. The, the, the question I'm, I maybe might like to discuss with you some other time is I, I'm a particle physicist in my early career. I, I was on a LEP experiment. And, and, and there's a big um, guilty silence about the debt which we owe to the Manhattan Project mm. as physicists. The Manhattan Project created a lot of um, instrumentation mm. and techniques. And, and when you taught as, as, a, as a physicist, as an undergraduate, there's, there is this thing of J.J. Thompson and all the academic and all the unworldly things. And I, I have always found there's a very big sort of conspiracy of silence that they don't tell you that, that a lot of the detector technologies that are used were actually pioneered um, during, during, during the Cold War, at the Manhattan Project and the Cold War. And, and, and there's a slight sort of yeah. uh, dis disconnect there. That's, that's a really interesting point. And I don't know whether you, what you'd make of this argument, but it has been suggested that the scale of big science... It doesn't encourage people think, to think about responsibility for projects in ways that they would if it was their own individual project, it was a small project. It's very big, everyone's got a, 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 sort of a task within that project. Um, I mean, famously, also in the Manhattan Project, there was a lot of compartmentalization, so people couldn't talk, couldn't see the bigger picture. Um, but, you know, it, it, I don't know whether you'd find that sort of 
explanation for why maybe it's sometimes difficult to talk about sort of the ethics or responsibility involved in big, big science projects as being part of the answer to that. Could, could, I, could I put, put also put another thing? This is, as it were, from a more br the broader historical perspective. There's one very curious thing that happens in 1951 too, which is that um, the Labour government in Britain decides to put an extraordinary amount of post-austerity money into the Festival of Britain, which is to celebrate precisely um, the scientific, the, the British heritage, but in terms of science. So you have both the Dome of Discovery, but you also have the South Kensington um, Science Exhibition. I've actually done quite a lot of work on that that I haven't yet published. Um, there is a very extraordinary decision which ends up being an ethical feed into British discussion of science in the years, in the Cold War years. In the documents, it's not true of some of the planning documents that John's looked at, but in all the published, and I actually can say this unequivocally, in all the published documents about the great British science um, of the night that, that is celebrated in the Festival of Britain, the word war is not mentioned once. It's just not mentioned. So a decision clearly was taken, because that couldn't happen by accident, that the, one of the things about a tonic for the nation was that you were going to put that behind you. Mm. Now, whatever the basis for doing that in 1951, I think it has a very long legacy in the way that these things do in the documentation. So that would just be one, uh, be, um, be, would, would be one, be my contribution to that. I think it's very interesting. I'm much more cautious now about big ethical arguments about this. I think many of these decisions are happenstance of what happens through a, a particular trajectory of arguing or funding bids or how you describe things subsequently. But you can discuss the science side with John. Right, we have a question in... We have two questions in the front row, so I'm going to take those two questions, and then... Um, uh, there you are. And then yours is next. Yes. Uh, so what implications... Look a bit closer so people um, can hear. That's all right, I think you're fine. So the compartmentalization of big science that you talked about, uh, what implication does that have for individual scientists? Because mm -hmm. before the war, you see all these big big mm -hmm. names and big theories, and that kind of gets undermined by big institutions and big projects after the war. Mm -hmm. And so by extension, what implication does that have for the theoretical landscape of physics? Right. Okay, so... The, the strict compartmentalization you only find in, in very military sensitive projects like the Manhattan Project, where you really couldn't talk to the people next door because you would that would you might find out something you, sh you shouldn't know. But I am struck by the the even in in that area the difference between before the war and after the war. So the discovery of fission right, and its confirmation are published openly in Nature in 1938 and 1939. You know. Already by that time, Leo Zillard is talking about what chain reactions mm -hmm. can do, openly, mm -hmm. right? Yet, through the Manhattan Project and, of course, under the Cold War, those sort of conversations would be taken, they'd be made secret, right? they'd be different. So there's that kind of, of, of restriction. But there's another kind of restriction that you get, I think, in, in um, just... Very, any very big, complicated project that you, to build the you know, instruments like that, you need to have um, people understand the 
fun, you know, the fundamental physics you're investigating, but you need to have instrument builders, you need to have people who uh, understand both theory and practice and lots of different engineering branches, for example. I mean, getting all them to talk about, because they each have their own languages as specialties, is really tricky. Now, that's not a matter of national security. It's a matter of the fact that people fall into jargons when they get into their own little groups and disciplines. And actually, that's as big a problem for big science as, as security. It's because of the, the complexity of, this, of these projects and the fact mm -hmm. that you need to have so many different kinds of languages being spoken at once, technical languages. That's very tricky. Very good. And, and the f our final question, and then you're going to enter the world of the collider. Thank you. Um, I'd like your views on how science, your view of how science progresses because we could go back to a traditional model and I started thinking about Darwin and Wallace and you know, Darwin being sort of suddenly driven into publishing you know, the origin of species because Wallace had written to him sharing his ideas and he thought, oh my God, after all these 20 years of research, I, I better actually get my name out there. Um, and so thinking about the scientist as the individual, maybe competitive genius, you know, wanting to put his name to a particular discovery, and this enormous project at, at CERN where you've got thousands of scientists working together. And I suppose I have two questions. One's really about the motivation of the individual mm. scientist to get involved in science. And um, also the other aspect is perhaps the move to open access and sharing of information and how this might accelerate progress. Right. I'm sorry if that's a bit of a complicated yeah, no, there's, question. There's lots, lots of interesting things in there. I mean, uh, to, the, to your first question, which is what drives science, I think asking problems drives science more than mm -hmm. anything else. And it's problems that are thrown up by every, the everyday world. And, and that most science is of that kind of problem-solving form. You know, it's, so it's solving how do you make this process more efficient or, you know, how do you get that... How do you, make that chemical reaction slightly that bit faster because you know you want to do that to solve some, uh, an industrial or, a, or, 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 or even an intellectual problem. It's mostly about answering problems. Um, but you also asked about um, uh, open access and there yeah. was something before that. Uh, uh, what was the one before? I suppose it's the, it's the individual versus yes, the Yes, that's right. So yes. Yeah. So, so obviously the, the, the papers, this, this machine produces paper Right, that's its product. It produces scientific or, um, papers, right? And, and those papers will have authors that will be tens or even hundreds of people. Now, that does change, and that is a feature of big science, and that does change how you get credit in the sciences. You still do get credit for getting your share of the name and being on that list or being just left off it can make yeah, a our big colleague, difference. Our colleague John Butterworth tells us he has to use his search engine to find his name. Yeah, it does still matter. Uh, <laughs> I think there can the be a credit, thousand names. The credit names, system still yes. does work, but it isn't as straightforward as it was when it really was one or two names per paper. It was someone's individual project. is a group product collective projects. And again, as the historians, the other sort of historian of science, I would add, I think that is changing the field. It's, it's changing it. I mean, someone like Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who should have a Nobel Prize, um, 
uh, in the description of the way this kind of big science worked would do. It would be obvious because if she's part of a team that does the minute detail, it isn't the stuff about the captain on the bridge, as we are told, gets the prize because he was really driving it. That isn't how it works anymore. And I would say, and I would like this to be the end of the session before I thank John, I think that's why women are coming into their own in science because traditionally they've been more part of the team work and less of the big front name for obvious cultural and social reasons. And now that's not an issue. That's not a problem in the same way that it used to be. I don't think it's a change of heart. I think it's not a pro the problem that it was. Now, I'd like to... Um, that was Chairman's um, uh, taking, taking advantage of the new chair, not to let anybody answer and contradict me on that, least of all John. <laughs> um, so... Um, uh, thank you all very, very much for listening so intently and, um, uh, and um, coming out tonight for this talk. But above all, thanks to John, who I think was extremely game to be my <laughs> guinea pig on this, uh, uh, for this event. And I hope the Science Museum will do many more, um, uh, because I think that this has something to contribute, particularly to um, uh, an under our understanding, if we're generalists, um, of something like the Collider ex exhibition.